Welcome to True Crime Medieval, 1,000 Years of People Behaving Badly. I'm Ann Brannan, and I'm your host who's recording in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I'm Michelle Butler in Maryland, the most medieval state in America. <laughs> Which we explain in some other podcast earlier. <laughs> it's... It's the jousting and the flag, just briefly. That's what it is. Uh, we're still recording in plague time in stay-at-home orders in both our states. This actually really doesn't make much of an impact on the podcast because we were always recording in different states. And so we were never sitting in the same room when we talked about this. But it does affect our moods, actually, sort of, you know. A little bit at least. I'm getting to use my office to record for the first time since the lockdown started. Your office at your house? Mm-hmm. Was your house not part of the lockdown? Well, no, it's just that people have been using this space. Oh, and you managed to get them out of your office? Yeah. Uh-huh. Do I want to know how you did this? It's just that Brian didn't have many meetings this afternoon, so he decamped <laughs> down to a different room. Usually as a full day of meetings. So the first week under lockdown, I was in the basement and that was when Samhain was recording with me. We had the cats. I remember we had the cats. Yeah. And then the last two times I've used my bedroom. So, but Brian only had two more meetings. So I booted him down there today. So this is what happens when you have an entire family who's at home and working from home. Because my wife is working from home, but she's over in her office and I'm in my studio with the parrot. And it's the same thing as it's always been. So I have told all three children that I'm recording, which does not in any way guarantee that they won't come knock on the door. Absolutely not. And so they're totally going in the outtakes if they do. I'm just telling you. I'll take their little names out and everything. But other than that, I'm keeping them, <laughs> I'm keeping them in. <laughs> Today we're talking about Vlad the Impaler, Vlad Sepesh, or Vlad Dracul, as um, we, he's also called. And so we're in Wallachia which is part of Romania. It's one of the pieces of Romania. Wallachia at the, um, about the middle of the 15th century, part of Romania. And Romania is at the crossroads of Eastern and Western Europe. The number of cultures that have been through Romania and left their mark, the Greeks, the Romans, the Goths, the Huns, the Bulgars, the Magyars, the, I know there was the Hungarians, the Mongols. It's just, it, <laughs> the background of Vlad is that there's been a lot of uh, movement back and forth and wars in his territory. And Wallachia didn't become independent from Hungary until 1330. And Vlad is, um, he's born in 1428. He dies uh, sometime around December 1476 uh, or January 1477. So Wallachia at this point is still kind of back and forth with it's messing with Hungary and it's uh, and the Ottomans. It's not a it's not a calm sort of time. Uh, it's not a calm time for Wallachia. Vlad Dracul, who would become Vlad Sepesh after he impaled everybody, because that's what that means, was born in 1428. He was the second son of his father, who was the ruler of um, Wallachia. And his father had become the ruler of Wallachia in 1436. And in 1442, Vlad and his younger brother were held um, hostage by the Ottoman Empire. Recently, they discovered the archaeological remains of the dungeon, the castle where they were held. Ooh, that's cool. I know. They were held by the Ottoman Empire 
at least you know which ones are fictional, which countries are fictional, and which ones are real. Because my understanding of this is so screwed up by Shakespeare and all of his fake Eastern European countries that he likes to randomly set things in. Wallachia existed. The Ottoman Empire existed. Hungary existed. That's pretty much what we're dealing with. Although the Transylvanian Saxons are going to come in there too. Hungary invaded Wallachia in 1447. Uh, so this is the same people from whom they had gotten dependence and uh, a little more than 100 years before then. And at that point, Vlad's father and his older brother were murdered. And Vlad is still at that point um, held in uh, in the Ottoman Empire. And at that point then, Vlad's second cousin, Vladislav II, was installed as the ruler of Wallachia. In the fall of 1448, Hungary attacked the Ottoman Empire. And Vladislav went with them. At which point, Vlad took over Wallachia briefly until Vladislav came back and he had to leave. Things fell apart, though, between Hungary and Wallachia. And in 1456, Hungary supported Vlad when he invaded Wallachia. Are you being able to keep track of all this so far? I think so. I, I'm, I'm, I'm following. Because, yeah, Vlad's, Vlad's cousin is on the throne after... Um, Hungary invades Wallachia. Right. And okay. And then, but then things fall apart. And because uh, Vladislav goes with Hungary, but things fall apart. And at that point, um, Hungary then backs Vlad. Okay, whatever. I don't think Hungary is entirely interested in Wallachia being a calm sort of political entity at this time. That's what I'm getting here. Okay. So Hungary supported Vlad when he in, in Invaded Wallachia in 1456. Vladislav was killed in battle, and Vlad then purged the Wallachian boyars, the nobility. Purging means he killed them off. I don't know whether you knew what that word meant, but that's what that meant. Because he wanted to make sure that everybody who was left in the <laughs> with any kind of power in the country was in favor of him. Fair enough. The Transylvanian Saxons had opposed him because they were allied to um, Vladislav's brothers and Vlad's half-brother. And so he plundered their villages. He took everybody capture. He took them back to Wallachia and he impaled them. That's the point at which he becomes Vlad Savich. That's it. When the Ottoman Sultan sent envoys demanding homage, Vlad impaled them too. He attacked the Ottomans in 1462, and he massacred the Turks and Bulgarians. The Ottomans put forth Vlad's younger brother. They backed him as a replacement for Vlad. Vlad went to Hungary to ask for assistance, but they imprisoned him in Visegrad from 1463 to 1475. So at this point, if you look him up on Wikipedia, you discover that he was the ruler of Wallachia three times, once when he invaded while Vladislav was out of the country and then he had to leave. The second, it, when he impaled everybody and then he got imprisoned in Hungary, he's going to come back again. During that time, the stories about his cruelty spread. He was released in 1475. He fought with Hungary against the Bosnian Ottomans and he was killed in battle. So he was released in 1475. He was he was the ruler of Wallachia again, but he was killed that year in late in late 1476. Or um, But he was dead at least by January 10th, 1477. So that's the Precy timeline, Vlad the Impaler. 
The Dracul part of his name was is real, and it was inherited from his father, who had joined the Order of the Dragon originally, which was originally one of the military crusader orders founded by the King of Hungary in 1408 and dedicated to holding back the Ottoman Empire. So he'd inherited that name from his father. I want to explain the Ottoman Empire because I was thinking, it's like, we say this all the time. What exactly are we talking about? The Ottoman Empire uh, had been founded at the end of the 13th century in Anatolia. After 1354, it controlled the Balkans. At its height in the 16th and 17th century under Suleiman the Magnificent, it controlled Southeast Europe, the Caucasus, North Africa, the Horn of Africa. Constantinople was the capital. What's going to happen to it way after our time period is that it was going to ally with Germany in World War I and get partitioned after that war, which is why it's no longer with us. The Dracul family line continued after Vlad's death from his third son, but they were no longer rulers of Wallachia. Okay, so the stories about his cruelty started in his lifetime. This is not one of those things where people said bad things about him after he died. No, no. They said these things while he was alive. And they became highly popular, especially in Germany. And they were helped both by Vlad's slaughter of the Transylvanian Saxons, which made a big impression on Germans, and the rise of the printing press. The timing of this is really bad for Vlad in terms of reputation. I'll kind of get to that. The stories that were being put forth were in essence true, though the extent of the cruelty really does get exaggerated, which 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 is hard when actually he really did impale all those Transylvanian Saxons. I mean, to actually exaggerate that kind of cruelty? Wow, take some creativity. By the time of his death, um, even during his imprisonment in Hungary, it was, said, it was said to have been due to his cruelty. The printed books also had horrific woodcuts. I might put one on our page. For instance, showing Vlad eating dinner surrounded by impaled people, <laughs> which if that actually had happened would be one of our blood feasts, but it didn't, so whatever. So that's from uh, that's the 1499 and 1500 editions of the German text. Yeah, Germany had the printing press, and so they were like able to print a lot of things. Lots of copies of the stories of Vlad the Impaler. The Russian manuscripts were clearly the story was popular because there's more than 20 still extant. They're copies of a South Slavic text from about 1485 in which Vlad is horribly cruel, but it's necessary to strengthen the government. The Romanian histories record the impalements and some legends that show up in the Slavic and German versions. This is where I was talking about the exaggeration, like where he would like just burn lazy and poor and lame people, or he executed some woman who sewed a shirt that was too short for her husband, you know, whatever. So they include that, but they make it very, very clear that his cruelty was necessary in order to rule and control Wallachia. That's the same. That's the same justification we got with Pedro the Cruel. Absolutely. Who really was very badly behaved, so was Vlad. From the mid-19th century on, Romanian historians have in general treated him as a great ruler and a fighter for independence who used terror because it was necessary. There's an exception. Uh, Ioan Bogdan, the historian, said that Romanians should be ashamed of him, but he seems to be a kind of lone voice. Stoker, I want to just say this about Stoker because Michelle is going to be talking about the vampires. And I just want to say, to make it really clear, that Stoker used Vlad because 
Vlad the Impaler was well known. He's a very well known piece of Romanian history, and his name was familiar. And Stoker wanted some local color for the vampire novel, so he used Vlad for the for because it was an authentic name. That's it. Having to do with Vlad the Impaler, that's what has to do with vampires. It's the Irishman Bram Stoker connecting Vlad because he liked the name. That's it. But I want to talk about medieval war crimes. You interested in this, Michelle? Yep. Yep. And I definitely wanted to talk to you about him compared to Pedro the Cruel because his name is is generally known because of that connection that Bram Stoker created. But on the scale of, say, Henry VI, right, who never did anything bad on purpose, but was incompetent, all the way up to (laughs) Pedro the Cruel, (laughs) where does Vlad fall, the real real warlord? On the scale of 1 to 10, if 10 is Pedro the Cruel, I would say that Vlad the Impaler is 15. So worse, worse than Pedro. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. In that fact, that's right off the top of my head. And so why am I thinking that? I think Vlad was much more efficient. And Pedro the Cruel would absolutely kill you if you were in opposition to him. Vlad would kill you if you were living near someplace where somebody was in opposition to him. And he would kill you and all your neighbors, uh, women and children. I, I don't know. Did he leave the dogs and cows alone? I have no idea. But I have, the article in Wikipedia says if he was operating now, he would be convicted of genocide and war crimes. That's the deal. It wasn't just war crimes, what we would consider war crimes. It was genocide. So I'm curious, though, as to what that, that's using our standards. So by medieval standards, is he considered or is it just the people who would have opposed him anyway? who consider him to be a criminal. The surviving Wallachians, I gather, think okay of him, but I'm not entirely sure about that. I, but that's what I want to talk about. Like, what are the medieval standards? Are there any medieval standards for what a war crime is? And how are they applied? So yes, because I was curious about that. So I went to look this up and I do love my military history. So the first actual trial for medieval war crimes, for war, for war crimes in the Middle Ages, was in 1474, when Peter von Hagenbach was executed for the murders and rapes committed by his soldiers during the occupation of Breisach. So that's 1479. Vlad the Impaler is actually alive at this time. Fair enough? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Our international laws didn't start until the late 17th century. In the Middle Ages, warfare was understood to include pillaging, arson, murder, and rape. It's as you go on into the late Middle Ages that things start to actually change, although there, I want to talk about some laws before then. And Vlad the Impaler is in the late Middle Ages. And so there's two things, I think, that contribute to his contemporary understanding of someone who was unnecessarily cruel and our understanding of it. And one is the printing press because his story got sent around so widely. And the other is that the notion of war crimes has become stronger right at this time. (laughs) Isn't that nice? Vlad the Impaler, that's why we know about him. Interesting. That corresponds with this emerging idea that there is a principle of governance other than whatever the king says goes. Yeah. That's that's also something that's emerging in the 15th century. 
Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, he's uh, he's at the crossroads of a lot of things, and that's one of them. The church, rather than secular authority, had overall jurisdiction. So that's one of the things about, well, when you talk about what are medieval war crimes, you're talking about a vast, <laughs> a continent, um, and some islands stuck on the onto it, a continent of lots of different countries. And it's the church in, uh, in Christian Europe, it's the, the church that has a kind of constant presence. And the Pax Dei of 989, which is very early, proclaimed excommunication as a penalty for some war crimes. And here are the war crimes, despoiling ecclesiastical property, robbing the poor, or attacking women, children, and unarmed clergy. So by 989, that was an idea of war crimes. Okay. Okay. Non-combatants. Yes. Non-combatants. And you know, you're not supposed to steal stuff from poor people. You can go and raid John Agon's house, but you can't steal stuff from people. Yeah. But that's not secular law. That's, that's the church law. The 11th century truce of God, also this is also the church, is the point at which uh, combat was banned from noon on Saturday to Monday morning. Uh, and later that will become all high holidays. And about a century later, there were only 80 days a year that were actually okay for fighting. Now, was this obeyed? No, it was not. But it was a thing, it was a kind of overarching idea, if that makes sense. By the late Middle Ages, military courts were convened in France and England in an attempt to enforce acceptable soldierly behavior, but the standards were really very, very low, so don't get excited. And in 1385, under Richard II, the Ordinance of Durham not only specified the rules, don't desert in order to pillage, for instance, but specified that the rights of citizens should not be violated. That is a big deal. And that's 1385. It's before Vlad. So there are places in Europe where this is being paid attention to. Uh, Wallachia, not so much. Um, I got that, by the way, from John A. Hammond, a military historian. Really liked his his work. I just want, I think we should point out that it's not that some of these things weren't considered to be wrong before that. It's just that it's you know, ruler by ruler. If the particular Viking lord that you're raiding with isn't okay with you doing whatever you want, he can decide what to enforce. But in terms of this emerging idea of there being codes that have a, a wider buy-in to, that's, that's what's different. We've talked about this before. We were talking about this with Pedro, this, the Pedro the Cruel, for instance. It is true that there were very clear notions of how to treat prisoners, but they had to do with economics. Prisoners who couldn't afford ransom, I mean, there were no prisoners who couldn't afford ransom. You just killed people. But uh, you would, might take a prisoner who was noble and hold them for ransom because you have to feed them and everything. You're not just going to do this for free. You have to be getting money back. But what that means is that if I uh, should take a prisoner and hold him for ransom, that money, any money is mine. And so therefore you should not kill him because you, that's a wrong done to me, not the prisoner. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And of course, it's not considered theft when you have when you've captured a prisoner of war, and if they had something good, you oh, know, no, no, the armor, no, no. the horse, all of that stuff is 
absolutely, absolutely forfeit. It's the idea that you've stolen that from this person is is not anywhere in anybody's consciousness. Oh, no, 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 no. And if your leaders give you permission to go pillage, that's just fine. The dictum against pillaging uh, when you haven't been allowed is that you are essentially deserting. You should be doing something else and instead you're robbing people. And there is a notion that it's very bad behavior to kill civilians and rape women, but it isn't something that's illegal, it's certainly not at a international level. Uh, but not even at uh, national levels. I went looking for something because you and I had talked about this. We were because because we know Shakespeare. Uh, we were interested in the part at the Battle of Agincourt when Fluellen is upset. He says they, to kill the boys. To to kill the boys. That that's against the what he says the rule of law. But it's not actually. <laughs> In 1419, Henry V had made ordinances of war that forbade rape of women, desecration of churches, and the taking of children under 14 as prisoners. But it, uh, the killing off the baggage boys is not actually con contained in that. I thought I'd tell you. Shakespeare's just, you know, being Shakespeare. That's interesting. He um, He's definitely going out of his way in there to try to make sure that Henry V looks even better than what you can argue that he was, right? Even if you want to take a really golden view of him. Because elsewhere in the play, he has he he gives orders that you're not gonna take anything without paying for it. So you're not gonna not gonna have the army go and at like like they typically would do, support themselves by stealing from the countryside. He tells them, No, if you're gonna re if you're provision from the French citizens, you're going to to pay for it. Mm hmm That's actually in his ordinance, yeah. Mm hmm mm hmm That's actually there. If I remember this correctly, there's stuff about pillaging and when you're allowed to not and when you're not, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, yeah, there's a he does order the prisoners killed, but his reason is not that the French have killed the baggage boys. It's has to do with another French attack. But it's a big deal because you're losing money. So we have this concept in the Middle Ages of war crimes, but it doesn't necessarily line up with what we would consider to be war crimes, so we always have to be careful with terminology. Absolutely. But it is very clear from the speed at which uh, Vlad's reputation for cruelty went across Europe that it was over the top. It was over the top for late medieval Europe. That's an interesting point. I wonder, I wonder how how their reaction would have been 300 years earlier or 500 years earlier. I don't think much reaction. It would be like, you know, the, the usual history. No, it's that it's, it, he's late. That's the deal. He, it's this time period. Yes, yes, yes. Things are changing in Europe and uh, he, <laughs> he's not going along with, you know, some new ways of thinking. Yeah, the slaughter of entire populaces has certainly been done before. You know, people know about that as a method for dealing with um, insurrection or captured enemies. That's been done. Now, the whole impaling thing, that's just, I mean, the, the cruelty of it is, it isn't like he just went and slaughtered them and, you know, cut all their throats or something. No, no, no. The impaling is really bad. But that has to do, of course, definitely what impaling an entire population does is it creates a visual spectacle 
that is extremely powerful. Which, which of course, is something that the Romans were good at. He's not inventing this. Yeah, he's not inventing this concept. This has been around for a long time, but the Romans, it was different. It was a different time. They could get away with that. They lined the Appian Way with the crucified Spartacus rebellion mm-hmm. uh, rebels, didn't they? That was, wasn't that the Appian Way? Yeah. It's much easier to impale people than to crucify them. I'll just point that out in terms of you know what you can manage in a day. You have to have a, but the Romans were very efficient. They were very efficient. So they could crucify 600 people. Yeah. So yes, if it had been earlier, we would have the story, but we wouldn't, it it wouldn't be as powerful as it was. It got spread all over. It, It was taken note of because things were changing and it got spread all over because of the printing press. Ta da, my assessment. Yeah, I think you're right. I hadn't really thought about the, the role of the printing press in cementing his reputation. But, you know, you and I talked about with Pedro the Cruel that he had one reputation in Spain, but over in England, they're talking about him entirely differently. Once you have printing and you can move things around a lot faster Mm -hmm. and in larger volumes, it's much harder to have that kind of humongously disparate reputation in two different places. His reputation in Romania is different, but that's it. Yeah, that's it. Oh, yeah. And you should see the woodcuts. I'll put one on the page. It's like, <laughs> it's just not good. <laughs> very, but it's, very... it's early to crime literature. It is actually related to crime literature, isn't it? Yeah. Here's the terrible bad things done to our people by Vlad the Impaler. Here he is eating his dinner with our people stuck around the table. It's news. And then you got books. You send them around. So I think this the impaling thing is, you know, one of the reasons it's been so easy to attach the vampire legend to him. Mm, I think so, too, because the, the blood. Yeah, the whole stake thing, you know, has a certain amount of overlap. Yeah, 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 yeah. As if it somehow just kind of makes psychological sense, right? That somebody who likes to impale other people would himself have to be dispatched with a stake but you know as you said there's 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 not any evidence at all that anybody in his time period attached this folklore to him i didn't know much of anything about this so i learned lots of things which makes me happy so (laughs) one of the things i found out that i didn't know is that the same party weekend of 1816 that resulted in Frankenstein resulted in a story called The Vampire that was started off by Byron. He didn't finish it. His buddy Polidori asked, hey, can I finish that up? And he writes this, finishes the story, and is published in 1817 and kicks off. So that's the first. Okay. Yeah, it kicks off 19th century interest in vampire stories. So that's a really important weekend for literature. Yeah, it was. Did Stoker know that story? I don't know if he knew that one in particular. He he knows the ones that draw from it. There's a nice book called A Dracula Handbook that is by Elizabeth Miller, who's a professor emerita at the University of Toronto and is uh, kind of a Dracula bigwig. So I have a nice quote from her about this. Polidori's The Vampire was to become the prototype for most subsequent fictional vampires throughout the 19th century. The villain, Lord 
Ruthven is not at all like the vampires of folklore. Rather, he is handsome, jaded, and charismatic nobleman who bears an intentional resemblance to Lord Byron himself. <laughs> well, Byron started it, didn't he? Just. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So it kicks off this wave of 19th century vampire literature, including one by our old pal Dumas. Mm. The Pale Lady, 1848. Is there a pond he wasn't dipping into? No, he was so prolific and very varied. <laughs> he was a busy, busy person. You know Carmilla, right? That was the next one I was going to... I haven't actually read Carmilla, but now I want to, having read about it. It sounds amazing. When I uh, would teach the horror lit class, I had to include Dracula because, duh, although it really, it really annoys me. But Carmilla. Oh, I love Carmilla. Yeah. <laughs> Go read Carmilla. That's the one Stoker probably knew. Yeah, Stoker did know Carmilla. Mm -hmm. That's why I was. That's why I was using it. Besides the fact that I like it, I don't really like much vampire literature. There's there are there's certain tropes in horror lit that bore me to hell. One would be zombies, bore 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 bore. Um, another is vampires. The other is like aliens. I'm like totally bored by all these things, and I don't know why. I like bad house trope. I like I like horror stories that are about bad houses. <laughs> I do like those. But yeah, Carmilla, mm, very good. Very, very good indeed. And that one is by an Anglo-Irish author like Stoker. So somebody he, I mean, is probably like the one generation earlier because Carmilla's published in 1872 and Dracula's published in 1897. So one generation before him. His innovation, Stoker's innovation, is bringing the horrors of the Gothic into the contemporary modern world. Yep. Yeah. Because even Carmilla is kind of past and romantic stuff, yeah, yeah. Whereas Dracula is all about we went we we went on to the main thoroughfare and had an adventure. It's like very very modern London, yeah. And I think that's really interesting because the Gothic was not a new by eight by the eighteen nineties. The Gothic as a genre has been around for over a hundred years, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. probably longer. I'm learning more about the nineteenth century, but it's not my you know. <laughs> area of expertise. My horror lits class always started off with The Monk, which is just just so scary, really, and full of dreadful things. So he hauls this all over into the contemporary modern world. And there are there are science fiction elements to it. One of the things that struck me reading Dracula is the importance of the typewriter and how much is being done in the book with the importance of being able to gather information, collate information, and then send it back out to people. And of course, it's Mina who has to do all the typing because, you know, some things never change. <laughs> I will tell you that Dracula has kind of a soft spot in my heart because I had a really interesting experience reading it for the first time. I was listening to it as an audiobook, and we had gotten delayed by snow. And so we're driving out to my parents' house. This was years ago at this point. And it is absolute dark because we are in the middle of freaking nowhere of Illinois. And it's two o'clock in the morning and everybody else in the car is asleep. And I am petrified holding onto the steering wheel, <laughs> listening to them tracking Dracula down to kill him at the end of the book. I was not sleepy. In the dark and in the snow. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, that is a good scene. I, I will admit Oh my that. God, it was so scary. I might have felt differently about it reading it under different circumstances, but holy cow, under those conditions, it was really scary. There are pieces of Dracula which are just totally brilliant and which are wonderful. I think my big beef with it is that I really want some more editing. I don't think that it needs to be... I, I don't think it needs all the stuff that's in there. So yeah, but the, the core of it is just really lovely. Very well done. So one thing I've found out that's interesting about it is that he mostly just lifts the name. He finds it in a book of history, Wilkinson's history about Transylvania and the other place that is a real place that sounds fake that he was actually king of. I don't remember. Wallachia? Yeah, that one. Um <laughs> Yeah, well, Ikea. It it does sound fake, but it's not fake. It's real. It's a real place. It's not there anymore because it's an, a political entity, which is, you know, gone. But yeah, it's just part of Romania now. So a more substantive source for him is Emily Gerard's article, Transylvanian Superstitions. Ah, uh, that's where the folklore came in. Yeah. Her essay is the source of the word Nosferatu. Really? It's not a real word. It's not a word in Romanian. Or Hungarian. The author I was reading thinks that it might be a mishearing of a Greek word for, hold on, let me scroll down. Uh, it might be a mishearing of a Greek word, nosferafo, uh, N-O-S-O-P-H-O-R-O-S. And what does that word mean in Greek? Pl plague carrier. Well, huh, we got a bunch of those around right now, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> we got an entire globe full of Nosferatu. <laughs> Plague carrier. <laughs> I had forgotten that the idea that sunlight destroys vampires isn't in Stoker's book. I had forgotten it, but I was reminded with doing the research on this. It appears for the first time in the 1922 film, that German film Nosferatu. And apparently it's put in because it makes an awesome special effect. I love that. That's very Isn't it great. Nice. Yes, yes, yes. It does make an awesome special effect. Yeah. Okay. Stoker was dead by the time the film was made, but his widow fought a long legal legal battle with the filmmakers because it was clearly based on Dracula, but they hadn't bothered to get permission or pay any rights or anything. She eventually won the lawsuit, but it didn't matter. <laughs> they they were ordered to destroy all copies of the film, and it didn't happen. Uh huh. Yeah. There's an interesting suggestion that. One of the reasons he sort of unconsciously picked the name Dracula is that it sounds similar to a Gaelic phrase that is pronounced Dracula and means bad blood. Mm. I am in no position to evaluate whether that is, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, and it's possible, but Stoker, Stoker he was Anglo-Irish and, and living in London, yeah? The likelihood that he knew any Gaelic seems very small. Very small. By his lifetime, the English had worked very hard to stamp out anybody who was speaking Gaelic. So the likelihood that Stoker was running into anybody speaking Gaelic. What year is Dracula? Remind me again. Dracula was published in 1897. That's after the famine. And it's the famine that finally breaks the back of Irish for a while. I mean, it comes back and it, you can find it and it's around. And it's it's the famine. They lost, lost a third of the population, much of it Irish speaking. <laughs> my ancestors, for one. <laughs> Some of my ancestors were there and they were speaking Irish and they died. <laughs> Ours came too. the The marquee screen showed up in in uh, New Jersey 
at that time that they left to avoid starving. Yeah, it's really. It, I think it's really unlikely that he that he w- he wouldn't have known Irish, and the that's not a word that he would have run into. Or I, I so I kind of doubt that. It would. It's one of those. Wouldn't it be pretty to think so? Sort of exactly suggestions. Did he even know that that Dracul meant dragon? I doubt it. He literally sort of looks like he opens up a book, grabs a name, and closes the book. I, it really does feel like that. Yeah, Stoker, whatever. Because he doesn't ever use the name Vlad, even. Mm-mm, mm-mm. One writer, I'm back to back to Elizabeth Miller again, because this I thought was fascinating. And here's a quote. One writer in a work that was familiar to Stoker comes up with this diatribe. There are other and darker shades in the Wallach character. And in these, alas, he much resembles his Hibernian prototype. He is given to treacherous revenge and is capable of the most awful atrocities when aroused. I thought that was fascinating because it makes this implicit comparison between the Transylvanians and the Irish, that they're both just awful. And I'm trying to really recall, I, 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 I would not be averse to knowing it were it true, but I'm trying to recall the Irish, any of the Irish, impaling entire populations on sticks outside their palaces. And that is not coming to my mind. What the hell is he talking about? What the hell is he talking about? That's, there's no there there. <laughs> yeah, of course, that's not a modern scholar. That's, you know, a 19th century scholar who is seeing. Oh, I totally get this. Anybody who's not English is basically uncivilized and backward. Yes. I mean, they thought the Irish had tails. I mean, for the love of God. I mean, if you're going to talk about horrendous things, I'd go for Cromwell and, you know, the massacre of Drahila myself personally, but that's me. Yes. Okay. So I'm annoyed now. Yeah, I thought you might like that. So I definitely wanted to share that with you. I totally got annoyed at that. I am so annoyed at that. I have, I, I have in all caps in my notes. He just compared them to the Irish. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, oh my god. Yeah, no, no, no. And it's not like the Irish. Are, I, I would not argue that the Irish are well behaved. As you know, I believe that humans have behaved badly all through history, but there's behaving badly and there's impaling entire populations on stakes outside your palace. And those are two different things. Scale, 15 on the scale, Michelle, 15 on the scale. Irish, basically, don't, but don't get up above eight, really. I don't know. The the ironic piece, of course, of, of Stoker connecting Dracula to Vlad the Impaler is that there's there's no reason, particular reason to have made that connection, but without the connection, there wouldn't particularly be widespread interest in Vlad the Impaler. Yes. It's yes. It's 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 such an interesting moment about the power of story. Mm-hmm. Right? One of the very last classes I taught before I retired was called Based on a True Story, where we looked at real historical events and then how they got fictionalized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we didn't do Dracula, but we maybe could have, because this is why we're still, you know, this is why everybody has heard of Vlad the Impaler and nobody had heard of Pedro the Cruel. Right, right. Or Beatrice Chenchi or, you know, the <laughs> the Tour de Nell affair. Yeah, everybody's heard of Vlad, but they don't really 
they they don't really know Vlad. Yeah, so and there's so there's these two things that contribute to Vlad being popularly known in American culture at least these days. And one is that the printing press spread the story around and the other is Bram Stoker. And I'm not even going to talk about all the other. It can be an exercise. It's way far out of our bailiwick to think about all the other vampire adaptations. There's tons of them, absolute tons of them. Musicals, ballets, films, postage stamps. You can go you can go to Whitby and do the Dracula walking tour, fan clubs. It's wild. The only vampire I'm willing to to spend any time with at all is Carmilla. That's it. Other than that, no, I'm not. Oh, well, I do make an exception and make another exception. And that is Anne Rice's vampire, because what she did that was different for the vampire trope was she made the vampire accessible and sympathetic by taking the vampire like and and really exploring the philosophical and religious issues and being a vampire. (laughs) What does it mean to be? How do I feel about being a vampire? I mean, that's the entire interview with the vampire is like how he feels about being a vampire and what, what kind of decisions you have to make and what it means to be a vampire. And that is new. That's Anne Rice. And so now we're used to it. We take it for granted, but we take for granted the exploding in the sun too. And that stuff gets just just stuff gets invented, and then it it just seems like it's always been there. I did find one. Maybe there are others, but they were hard to find. I didn't find them. I found one historical novel that is just about Vlad, not any vampires. Usually in this portion of the podcast, we are discussing adaptations, current adaptations and later adaptations of our historical figure. And of course, the vampires haven't got anything to do with him. But oh my God, there's actually a novel about Vlad? Yes, it's by C.C. Humphreys, and it's a it's a pretty new novel, actually, and it's called Vlad: The Last Confession. Ooh, and it's on it's on Kindle Unlimited. Okay, and I did not read the whole thing, but what I looked at looked like I would read it. But he's not confessing to being a vampire, is he? Because if he's confessing to being a vampire, then he's right out. No, no, it actually, um, again, looked at it very quick, but looked at some reviews of it. Uh-huh. What he, what the novel is doing is looking at how he goes from being a basically decent human being to being a horrible human being. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. So, and so he, he explains about why he impaled all the Transylvanian Saxons on, you know, outside his palace. Yeah. So I gather. I want to know what somebody thinks is a good explanation for that. That one's about the real human and essentially appears to be basically his Macbeth version, right? Where you start out with good intentions and then... Then you start killing people, and now you don't know how to stop. Yeah, and you and you know, and you have the stakes left over. I mean, you know, you got to use them somehow. Plus, you know how to. I mean, everybody's used to how to. The, the technology of staking has become really easy. You know, everybody knows how to do it. You have to make things work out even. You ha- can't have an extra victim or an no, extra stake. No, no. I'm also reading an incredibly long book called The Historian that is 26 hours of audiobook, so I'm not done with it yet. It's a much more kind of standard vampire plus history story. It's an intergenerational story. This is also a new-ish book. It came out in 2005. There's a, the, the dad. I'm enjoying it because a lot of it is academic research. <laughs> yes, and that's always fun. It, um, it reminds me of um, Josephine Tay's book about Richard II. 
where they're doing a lot of research and trying to figure out what the real story is. But there are most definitely vampires in it. And then, of course, the other fun adaptation that crossed my path was an episode of Epic Rap Rap Battles of History featuring... Do you know Epic Rap Battles of History? No, I do not. This is a YouTube series in which they pit two historical or sometimes fictional characters against one another and they they go back and forth <laughs> arguing that why they're better than the other one <laughs> I, I believe the humans behave badly most of the time but i do enjoy their creativity <laughs> <laughs> one of my kids loves epic rap battles of history he will play them for me he'll summarize them for me and there is one pitting dracula against vlad the impaler okay all right there you go so yeah that's it <laughs> that's a good little summation of this particular thing <laughs> yeah the internet is great about spreading misinformation but it can also clear up misinformation mm, it can yeah, they- yeah, I can. Yeah, because it's all there. So it really depends on where you focus and what you're likely to run across because of your focus and how it is you interpret things. Yep. It's all there. And it came so quickly too. The innovation of the internet. Oh, because oh, oh, it, it was it, like it started out and you could occasionally find some things. And then after a while, you could find all things. All things were there. And some things that are not true. <laughs> it's a number of things that are not true. Yeah. Is it half and half? I don't know. It might be. So that was fun. I I learned some things. Yeah, I I was I wanted to do Vlad be, be and I knew that uh, most of the adaptations, if not all of the ad- adaptations, were not going to be have anything to do with him whatsoever. It has turned out to be true. But I was interested in the issue of war crimes. What exactly uh, was was he in the wrong? And the answer is yes, he was because of his time period. Yep, it was wrong to impale all the Transylvanian Saxons on stakes. It was just wrong. That's my dictum on this. It is interesting because it's so that epic misread of his time period. We see this as. The modern, the medieval is trans transitioning into the early modern. Charles the first utterly misreads the time period he's living in, and he thinks he can rule as if he's in the ninth century. Mm-hmm. And England says no. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Kind of decidedly. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, things shifted. Things really shifted. So that's our podcast studying. Vlad the Impaler and Dracula, who he wasn't. (laughs) So I will say what we're doing next. Joan of Arc. Are we really? Oh boy. We're going to do Joan of Arc. And you are aware of the crime that she died for, right? Oh, I think we've talked about this, right? That That it's heresy, not witchcraft. It's not witchcraft. It's only technically. Is this the dressing in boys clothes thing? Yes. She died for cross dressing. That was what they got her on. It was a technicality. She died for cross-dressing. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, God, indeed. I love my time period, but holy crap, sometimes it's hard. Yep. 
This has been True Crime Medieval, where the crimes are just like they are today, but with less technology. Uh, and uh, we're on Apple Podcasts, iHeart Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, um, other places. Please leave a review. We'd appreciate that. And you can reach us at truecrimemedieval.com, where you can also find the show notes, which are written by Michelle, and the transcripts, which are done for us by Lori Dietrich. And you can reach all three of us through the webpage. And you can leave comments. We'd love to hear from you. If you have medieval crimes you think we should um, investigate, please let us know. Uh, I forgot to tell you at the beginning of the podcast that the podcast is not child-friendly. So I'm telling you now, I hope you figured that out. Bye. (laughs) Okay, bye. I'm really having to start this over because there's two Vlad Draculs and like one is the dad and one is the father. And I could say Vlad 2 and Vlad 3, but I don't know that it would help me any. So this is totally outtakes, I'm just telling you. And Vladishov, Vladislav, Vladislav, Vladislav. <laughs> really, I practiced all these things so much because this is not easy for the English tongue.